Would you stand with me this morning and let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy 4. I want to read our text together this morning. And we will be looking specifically starting at verses 6 through 8, but let's read together from verse 1 so that we can kind of get a running start into this text and take it all together. 2 Timothy 4, and we'll read actually verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, what a magnificent text this is. What a magnificent epithet this is for the Apostle Paul. I pray that You would teach us what this means. That You would speak to us through this Word. This this Word is Your Word. It is truth. And it is here for us to sanctify us, to set us apart, to be Your people, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Father, we want all that You want for us. Teach us to submit ourselves to You completely and to rest in the grace of Christ and His strength when obeying You becomes difficult. Any, really, Father, any and all of this is far beyond our ability to do Would you please work it in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. We pray all of this for the glory of Christ in the church forever. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We, this morning, come to the final paragraph that is logically connected to this exhortation that we've been working through together, which appears in verse 2, preach the word. This is still part of this this body of thought. And as we begin this morning, I have a great desire to be as clear as I can be regarding those to whom this command is given. We know for certain that this command is given to Timothy. right? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing this letter to Timothy. This is for him. He has been sent as a an apostolic emissary, an elder in the church in Ephesus. And Paul is exhorting Timothy to preach the Word there. Primarily, in extension of Timothy's application, I think this is primarily written to elders. Those who are called to preach the Word to the household of God in the public gathering of the body of Christ, the local church, And also, as we noted when we read the the exhortation to do the work of an evangelist, certainly that applies also preaching the gospel in the community around the local church. But I I think that it's important that we all understand that, that this exhortation to preach the Word extends beyond those who would preach it in the pulpit. Secondarily, and at least in effort to imitate the examples that are set forth by Timothy and by the elders, there is some application to every believer to herald the Word of God. 
I hope you feel that. I hope you understand that. There is some application to every believer to preach the Gospel. Not in the corporate setting of the gathered church, but to herald the message of the Gospel into the world. Whether it be to a believer, a fellow, un, a believer, or a fellow, a fellow believer, or an unbeliever, every believer is called to teach disciples. Right, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and twenty is the Great Commission. Every believer is called to speak as an ambassador of Christ. I love that 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 application there for us in Second Corinthians chapter five. If you have been reconciled to God, then you are also called to speak the message of reconciliation as an ambassador of Christ. And so this main idea in some way falls upon all of us. And I think these verses, verses 6-8, through eight, bear that out even more clearly. There's so much in these three verses that must grip us as we seek to understand and apply ourselves to the calling to which we have been called as the people of God. The main idea, again, is we have gone over the last couple of weeks is here in verse 2 to preach the Word. Paul has detailed what faithful preaching of the Word is. What it looks like. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. We've noticed the motive of faithful preaching, which is to have one audience in our minds. The presence of God and Christ Jesus. And to always be mindful in the speaking of the Gospel, the preaching of the Gospel, that, that there is one who is going to judge the living and the dead, and that we will be delivered and rewarded by His appearing and His kingdom. We also looked at the method of faithful preaching. Again, the main exhortation is preach the Word, and all of the exhortations that follow out of that in verse 2 describe how preaching of the Word is to be done. It is to be done with readiness, when it is convenient, when it's inconvenient. To, to exercise reproof and rebuke and exhortation and to do all of that with a complete patience and teaching. And as we go through these exhortations and continue to look at them and their implications in our lives, it is imperative that we remember that none of this is to be done in our own strength. None of this. How can we? Who is sufficient for these things? But we must remember as well that as believers, we have a new principle of life in us. We are not dead in sin any longer. We've been raised and united with Jesus Christ. And therefore, that is why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're going to hear me repeat something like that often throughout this message. We are called to do these things, not in our own strength, for that would be impossible, but by resting in the strength of Christ's grace. And that is available to each and every believer by virtue of our union with Christ and our indwelling by the Holy Spirit. We must be mindful of that. Continually mindful of that. And so Paul continues and he talks about the moment of faithful preaching. There is a time coming when people will not endure the content of faithful preaching, which is, of course, sound teaching, sound doctrine. But instead, they listen to teachers who accommodate their worldly desires. And so they turn away from hearing from the truth, from hearing the truth, and wander off into myths. And lastly, then last week, we looked at the man of faithful preaching, which is one who is to be sober-minded, not distracted by various mental intoxications, but to be fixed on that to which he is called to preach the gospel, to endure suffering. Because everyone, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus and proclaims the gospel will on some level experience mistreatment, persecution, suffering. It's inevitable. We noticed that particularly from the life of Christ last week. Because Jesus, you think about this, Jesus, the Son, the eternal Son, became human. He took on human flesh. And was there anyone more loving than He? Was there anyone who spoke the truth more perfectly than he? Of course not. He, he, he is the epitome of human perfection, and yet was there anyone that was hated more than he? And this goes along with true, truly loving others and truly speaking the truth. And so that is what we are called to, to walk in his steps. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. 
fulfill your ministry, complete the ministry. Now, in our text this morning, there are additional and I would say profoundly powerful motivations for preaching the Word, for us to faithfully preach the Word that Paul gave to Timothy to preach the Word. And as we take these words to heart, I would encourage us to prayerfully invite the Holy Spirit to change us by these words. Remember, we are not here just to fulfill time, to perform a religious duty. We are here to hear the Word of God and to be transformed. This is to have an impact on the way we think, the way we, we are in our character, in the way we behave and speak from day to day. These are inspired living words that God has spoken that recreate us into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice the grammatical connection between verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 8. Remember what we just said, verses 1 through 5 explains what faithful preaching is. And therefore, how to engage in that faithful preaching. But verses 6 through 8 here deliver additional motivations for doing so. And we know that because the word that verse 6 begins with. What does verse, sin be, what does verse 6 begin with? For. For presents a reason. Because, we could say... Because I am being poured out as a drink offering and everything else Paul's going to say. So, so Paul's exhortation flows like this. I charge you, Timothy, preach the word because I am already being poured out. So let's look carefully at these three additional motivations that Paul explains to motivate faithful preaching. And I'll List them like this, and you can look in your outline as well. And we're only going to look at the first two today because the last one is so full, so rich, so detailed. We're going to set it, set it for another week, Lord willing, next week. So there's a present motivation. There's a past motivation that Paul gives to Timothy and a future motivation. And I really, truly do hope that all of this, one of my greatest desires for us in this text is that as we seek to be conformed to its call, that one of our greatest motivations for doing all that Christ calls us to do will be His appearing. Let me ask you a question here at the outset. How often throughout the day as a child of God do you meditate on the appearing of Christ? How often does that motivate what you do how often does it come to your heart to compel you to do something you would otherwise not do or to not do something you would otherwise run into? The appearing of Christ. Do you love the appearing of Jesus Christ? That is something I hope will come from this text to us and we'll look at that when the time comes. Why should we preach the Word? Number one, a present motivation. The Apostle Paul says because... I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Therefore, Timothy, preach the Word. Let me crystallize the motivation for you here at the outset. I would say, this is the present motivation. Here it is. By the strength of Christ's grace, chapter 2, verse 1, step into the place that has been left vacant by the departure of sacrificial preachers. I think that's the universal application for us that Paul is going to spell out here for Timothy. By the strength of Christ's grace, step into the place that has been left vacant by the departure of sacrificial preachers. How did Paul place this call upon Timothy? And, and how does the Holy Spirit impress this upon us from this text? Well, notice the first phrase, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Poured out as a drink offering, Paul says. From the time of Paul's conversion, the Apostle Paul viewed his life and ministry as a sacrificial offering of praise to God. That is an amazing way to view your life. Every part of my life is a sacrificial offering of praise to God. 
practically speaking, he was willing to suffer great earthly loss and endure great earthly affliction as long as those sacrifices put God's worth on display and accomplished God's redemptive purposes. I think that's what it means to let your life be a sacrificial offering to God. Your earthly life is expendable for the glory of God and the advancement of the Gospel. What happens in a sacrifice? It's burned up. It's poured out. It's used. Earthly Paul viewed his earthly existence as simply an expendable resource for the purposes, the redemptive purposes of God. I think Paul encapsulated this ambition concisely in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That is how Paul viewed himself in his churches. With God's purposes in mind, he said, spend me. Spend me for your salvation, for your sanctification, for the glory of God. Paul was willing to spend his earthly life and resources for heavenly gains and the glory of God. That was one of Paul's central themes. It, in fact, he says it was his joy. It was his joy. Sacrifice the earthly to gain the heavenly for himself, for those he loved, for the elect, for the glory of God. Paul taught this principle constantly. Let me read a few verses for you where he alluded to this theme. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes into that chapter explaining how common believers like you and I can live in the church for the gospel, loving one another for the, for the glory of God. Paul stated in that verse, because Christ gave Himself for us, a great sacrifice to unite us to Himself, to bring us to God. Therefore, we, out of love and gratitude, must be willing to live our lives and be spent for His causes. Romans 15, 15-18, But on some points I have written you very boldly by way of reminder, because the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the Gospel of God. Paul viewed himself as a priest, as it were, offering sacrifices in the ministry of the gospel. Offering himself. Offering his earthly resources for the sake of the gospel. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In, G in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. Paul saw himself as a priest, offering himself to God in the gospel ministry, offering the conversion of the Gentiles to God for his praise. Philippians 2.17 Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul said, I am so happy to give my life that your faith would be born and grow and praise God. Isn't that something? Are you catching this mindset that he had? We can understand it, but we could ask God to make us own it for ourselves. Now, as Paul wrote this letter, you know, 2 Timothy, he was on death row, suffering moment after moment, in the Mamertine dungeon. We looked at, at the very outset of our study of 2 Timothy, we looked at even pictures of the Mamertine prison. Not, not a place you want to go for a weekend getaway. It was horrific. This was death row. It was literally a dungeon next to the Roman sewer system. And yet, he spent time there, day after day, moment after moment. Can you imagine how long those days and nights would have been? How agonizing. Why? For the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul writes in verse 6 that he viewed the physical suffering of his last days, his final days, as the final part of a life of sacrifice offered to God. This was his consolation in the dungeon. He calls his final days of sacrificial offering for the sake of the gospel a drink offering. His last moments, a drink offering, which was the final part of the Old Testament sacrificial offering. After the burnt offering, someone brings an animal and and completely consumes it on the altar to the Lord. And after the grain offering, then a drink offering. Maybe something like wine or oil would be poured out from a cup. Poured out to God upon the altar. And the sacrifice until every drop of the drink offering was gone and that aroma would waft up to God as a sweet-smelling sacrifice and offering. Every part of the sacrifice was spent. That was the last part. The last drops. Paul had come to the last part of the sacrifice of his earthly life and the cup of his life was being poured out. That's how he viewed it. Poured out to God. The blood of his martyrdom was about to be spilled out as a sacrificial drink offering to God for the glory of God, for the sake of the Gospel. All this was for that. The advancement of Christ's work in the world until the last drop of His life would be released. He wrote here as though His life was already being drained away. He said, I am already already being poured out as this drink offering. I imagine He wrote that because moments that had passed by in the dungeon were full of affliction. But also because He knew that the martyrdom was coming soon and it was certain. And yet, Paul willingly, joyfully sacrificed every part of his earthly existence on the altar of displaying the glory of God and declaring the gospel of God. You know, that is the definition of a grace-empowered sacrificial herald, isn't it? One who is willing and even joyful to sacrifice every part of his earthly existence for what? Upon the altar of displaying the glory of God and declaring the gospel of God as a herald of God. That's what Paul did with his life. You know, we don't we hold back so many earthly things and fall short. And, and hold tightly out of fear and, and idolatrous loves. And Paul, what did Paul hold back? Nothing. His very life he gave. And I find it amazing because he's just like us. He, this is not, not Christ we're talking about. He's, we're talking about another sinful fellow believer who said, I am the chief of sinners, who was so filled with the strength of Christ's grace and passion for God that he was willing to be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of what? Proclaiming the gospel faithfully to the world, to the church. Now having written that, Paul declares to Timothy that the time of his departure has come. Paul used a word here for departure, so picturesque, it envisions a ship that has set sail, having been loosed from its moorings. Paul is telling Timothy that he is going home. Through the martyr's death, Paul was about to be loosed from all that tied him to his body of flesh, and he was on the verge of setting sail for the shores of heaven where he would see his Savior face to face. And this was his ultimate joy. That was what enabled him to be poured out like a drink offering. Remember Philippians 1.23, that struggle that Paul had in his first imprisonment? Nothing like his last imprisonment. He was under house arrest. Now he's in a dungeon. But then, when he was under house arrest, he wrote to the Philippians, he said, I am hard-pressed between the two. Between what? 
staying here with you, and seeing Jesus. He said, my desire is to what? Depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Now here he is. He's about to. He's about to depart and be with Christ. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, finally his greatest longings were about to be fulfilled, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings. Paul experienced all of that. Paul knew Christ. Paul had the power of Christ's resurrection working in him. The same power that is available to you and me. And he shared his sufferings. And now he was becoming like him in his death and attaining to the resurrection of the dead for which he longed. And now Paul was on his way. The time of his departure had come. He doesn't have any regrets. He's given it all for the highest purposes that that Christ could give to one of his own. So why does Paul lay these words upon Timothy's heart? Because with the departure of Paul, there would be left a great void of faithful gospel preaching. Preach the word, Timothy, because I am I'm done. I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure has come. A Christ-like, sacrificial herald of the gospel was going home. But who would assume his post? Paul was calling upon Timothy to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the strength of Christ's grace. That's the present motivation. By the strength of Christ's grace, step into the place that has been left vacant by the departure of sacrificial preachers. And now this is an earnest call to us as well. Don't think that we're exempt from this call. I pray the Holy Spirit will apply this call to our hearts appropriately and powerfully this morning. Elders, elders in training, those who desire to be elders, you must sense the weight of this call for the glory of Christ in the world, for the building of His church. The older faithful generation of preachers who have sacrificially proclaimed the gospel to the church and the world will not be here very long. How often do you stop and think about those whose preaching and writing and teaching you have enjoyed for many years? And how old are they? And where are they? Do you ever think about that? It's not about them and their talent. It's about God's grace at work through them. And they won't be here very long. And many whom we have known and loved and been influenced and benefited by have already set sail, right? I know names are going through your minds. Who will assume their post? And that's, that's the call of this text. We must take their places if God would so call us and enable us by that strength of Christ's grace. But all believers must also sense some of the weight of this call upon their lives on a personal level. The older faithful generation of believers who have sacrificially spoken the gospel to many in the home, in the church, in the workplace, and prayed, many of whom, who have, many of whom have spoken the word to you and discipled you and preached the word to you privately. They won't be with us very long. And some have already departed. Who will assume their post for the making of disciples and the calling of sinners to be reconciled to God? Look ahead of you and see whom God has given to you for your edification and your mentoring and your discipleship. And look behind you. Who is there that God has called you to disciple and to speak the word to? And the world around us. We must take their place. That's what God calls us to. Are we willing? Are we willing to say like Paul in all of this calling to preach the word and to speak the gospel, I am joyfully eager 
to be a living sacrifice. Father, you can can remove from my heart these desires to love the world and to have all the things of the world and to spend my time satisfying myself. Take it all away from me and let me live as a sacrifice to you to proclaim the gospel, to disciple those in your church, to speak the truth, to preach the word. That's the present motivation. God's glory must be displayed. The gospel must be declared. The elect must be saved. The church must be built. And it will require great, great earthly sacrifices. Christ will see his mission to completion. There is no doubt about that. But we must, by God's grace, like those who have gone before us, be willing to allow our earthly lives to be poured out to the last drop for heavenly purposes if God should so ordain. Am I talking in plateaus? This is why we're here. Has God sealed this to your heart this morning? By the strength of Christ's grace, step into the place that has been left vacant by the departure of sacrificial preachers, proclaimers, heralds of the Word. Preach the Word. Why? Why should we preach the Word? Why should we be then eager to take the place of others who were poured out as offerings to God. Secondly, this morning, because of a past motivation. Because of a past motivation. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In verse 7, Paul humbly puts forth his own life's testimony. His own testimony of faithful Gospel proclamation. Why does he do that? Well, it's not for his own glory. I can guarantee you that. It is to declare to Timothy, first and foremost, the infinite value of the gospel itself. And the, in the infinite, the eternal value of gospel heraldry. And that value is powerfully demonstrated by the conflict and agony that Paul willingly endured in the gospel ministry. The value of something is demonstrated by the amount of struggle that you're willing to put into it. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's doing here. He says, look at what my life has been for the gospel ministry. Let that measure the value of it for you, Timothy. And he lays out all this for Timothy in order to encourage Timothy to follow his example of agonizing over the proclamation of the gospel. Think about that this morning. When you consider the ministry of speaking the gospel to others, of speaking the truth in love, do you view it in your life as a fight? a race, and a guardianship? Is that what it is to you? Is it, have you given it that much by the grace of God that it is a fight to you? An internal fight, yes. Sometimes an external fight even of words, truth versus error, but a conflict, a contest, an agony. The motivation for preaching the Word is this. Gospel proclamation is worth agonizing over. That's the motivation. Gospel proclamation is worth agonizing over. That, that's the, the motivation that Paul brings up to Timothy's heart out of his own past. And for plainly obvious reasons, it puts God's glory on display. It rescues sinners from God's wrath. The gospel does. It is the power of God for those who are being saved. Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And Paul demonstrates the value of gospel proclamation by describing his agony over it, his agonizing over it. He does so through three forceful, impactful, penetrating declarations that, that are his life. This could go on Paul's tombstone. I'm gonna, I want to read them to you literally 
in the order that, that the original language sets them, it's just such an impactful and, and emphatic thing. He says, the good fight, That's, that comes first. The good fight, I have fought. The race, I have finished. The faith, I have kept. That's how Paul goes out. Again, Paul does not declare these things in order to receive glory from men. He writes these things to Timothy in order to insist upon the great value of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. He makes it evident by describing his own effort and his own struggle and agony that he invested into it. He writes these things for a model for Timothy to follow. He writes these things to encourage Timothy to rely upon the abundant supply of of strength that Christ's grace would give to him every day. Paul wasn't, he's not saying here that he did this perfectly. He was as weak as anyone else. He confesses that over and again throughout his letters. But he did rely and experience the power of Christ's strength and grace. Look at the first phrase, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. The words that Paul used here refer to specifically a conflict. A conflict. A struggle. Specifically in the ancient Greco-Roman arena. Whether the conflict of a gladiator fight or the contest of an Olympic event. That's what Paul's referring to. I have fought the good fight. The words Paul used here are are really the source of our word agony. If you could be really crude and translate this very crudely, you would say the good agony I have agonized over. This is what he's saying there. The word comes in twice. It's the word for agony. Struggle. Conflict. A contest. When it came to preaching the gospel, Paul viewed himself as a soldier, a gladiator in the arena fighting fiercely. And Paul fought against his own sinful flesh and against Satan and his armies and against the world system as he sought to advance the gospel. All of those are fierce enemies, severe enemies of the cause of Christ. Our flesh, the world, the evil one. And Paul calls this fight a good fight. A noble fight, an honorable fight. Why? Because it's a fight for the cause of Christ. Notice the various aspects of ministry to which Paul applies that concept of conflict or struggle or fight. He uses the same word often in his letters. Let me read some of these Scripture texts to you. Philippians 1, 29-30. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict. That's the same word. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul viewed the defense and proclamation of the Gospel as a conflict. Because the world will come at him, did come at him, came at the Philippians, and and caused them to suffer. And that means a conflict, right? Because that is, a te- that is a temptation for us to, to back down and be quiet. And Paul says, no, this has been given to me, not only to believe, but to suffer. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For that, to present everyone mature in Christ by teaching and warning, for that I toil, struggling. That's the word, agony. Struggling with all His, Christ's energy (coughs) that He powerfully works within me. That's how Paul viewed preaching, teaching, warning to present every man mature in Christ. It was an agony against the world, against the flesh, and against the evil one. Colossians 2, 1-3, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea 
And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what he says at verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle. Same word. So what is Paul saying? To even write the letter to the Colossians in under house arrest, to, to get these words of truth down on paper and to this church, what was it? A struggle. For him to be on his knees in prayer, begging God to do the work in this Colossian church so that they would know the riches of the knowledge of Christ and be encouraged together and become one in love. What was it? What was his prayer time? A struggle. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Same word. What was going on there? Well, they just left Philippi. You know the story. (laughs) He was in prison. That's when he talked to the Ethiopian, or or the, the Philippian jailer. They were beaten and imprisoned, and then they got out of that by God's miraculous power. They came to Thessalonica, and the Jewish religious leaders got a band of people together to beat them up. So they jumped out of the frying pan and landed into the fire. Why? To proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to, to build the church. What was it? It was a conflict. 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive, same word, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What's Paul talking about in that context? He's talking about training for godliness and preaching the truth. What is it but a struggle, a striving to grow in godliness as you speak the truth? 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 12, same words. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession, the presence of many witnesses. Certainly, the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy to that which he himself experienced. Remember, Paul was a sinner too. He had the flesh. And he knew what it was to fight the good fight of the faith. To flee worldly desires and to pursue holy desires. Don't you think for a day that when Paul, I don't know how it was, when Paul sat up on the edge of his cot in the morning to get back to work, maybe he hadn't slept the night before because he was making tents. Do you think it was a struggle to keep doing what the Lord had called him to do? Of course it was. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim to please aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul viewed his life as a soldier. He fought the good fight as he preached the word and proclaimed the gospel. Look at the second phrase. I have finished the race. Another very well-known theme in the Apostle Paul's writings. Paul agonized as an athlete for the sake of the gospel. The image of a straining athlete is common in his writings, as he sought to elucidate the demands of ministry. It's a marathon. It's a long marathon, Paul says. The Apostle Paul left everything on the field. Remember how we used to say that in sporting events in high school? Coach used to look at us and say, guys, leave everything on the field. If you're not sweating, you're not playing. That's the way Paul viewed ministry. He finished the race. Paul exhorted Timothy a few verses earlier, verse 5, to fulfill his ministry. And now Paul is giving testimony of his own ministry race that he has crossed the finish line. He accomplished all the athletic events that God had prepared for him to do, as it were. That was Paul's holy ambition. Listen to what Paul writes in Acts 20.24. He says, this is astounding. Think of this. Own this. Can you own this? But I do not count my life of any value. 
That's astounding. I do not count my life, my earthly life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. According to God's grace, as He has called you to whatever He has called you to in the body of Christ and in the world, can you say that? 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's how Paul viewed life in the calling of Christ. His body was a tool to be used for the purposes of God. And so it required a discipline to beat his body into subjection that it would be useful to God in the proclamation of the gospel. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I'll be surprised if we get to heaven and find out that Paul didn't write Hebrews, but there's no official author of this book. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who through the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Paul just encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What a magnificent testimony Paul gave by the strength of Christ's grace. I have finished the ministry that Christ has entrusted to me. I want to be able to say that. Do you want to be able to say that? I finished. I finished the race. Finally, I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. When Paul says the faith here, he's referring to that body of true doctrine that must be believed. This is the objective definition of the faith. We've talked about that many times. Sometimes the word faith means a subjective kind of trust that we place in Christ. Sometimes faith refers to the, the, the character quality of faithfulness. And sometimes it refers to the truth. In this case, it refers to the truth. Because each one of the objectives of Paul's statements is, is just that, an objective reality. The good fight. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. Now he has kept the faith. It's the body of truth. It's the gospel. It's the New Testament, the Old Testament. It's the Christian doctrine, sound doctrine. And so Paul's relationship to the faith, he knew was the relationship of guardian to the treasure. Defender of the deposit. He contended. He struggled. He agonized to keep the gospel that he proclaimed pure. Free from contamination and perversion. And so Paul agonized as a guardian for the sake of the gospel. And we know he did. 2 Timothy 6, 13-14. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who, is, who, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Here it is. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that I have heard from, you have heard from me. He passed sound words on to Timothy in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who, dwelt within, who dwells within us. Now, Timothy, you guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul guarded the good deposit. He passed it off to Timothy. Timothy was called to guard that good deposit. And this is, this is why believers get so detailed in the doctrines of the gospel and argue sometimes about what the doctrines say and mean. It's not because, well, sometimes people do want to, to have one-upmanship on the other, but often 
It's a believer who is humbly seeking to defend the truth of the gospel. Why? Because the next generation needs to hear it. Because God needs to be glorified in His saving work. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as a one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What Paul exhorted Timothy to do, he did himself. By God's grace, he kept the faith. We can see this throughout his letters by his own example. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, the ministry of proclaiming the gospel, he says, we don't lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul refused to mess with the words of the gospel. And he commended that to others as well. Galatians 1, 6-10, maybe his most fierce gospel defense is found in Galatians. He says, I'm, he, he doesn't, so interesting, you open the letter of Galatians and he doesn't open with his, his, his usual prayer of thanksgiving. He cuts right to the chase and he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. That was Paul's passion. Don't leave the gospel. Trust it. Keep it the same. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now I am seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul gave his life and wrote his letters to guard the gospel. The purity of the gospel consumed his letters. Galatians 2, the, the, the narrative there talks about when he actually stood up and confronted Peter for a gospel variation to his face, it says there, in front of the others. Could you imagine what kind of, can I say this respectfully, what kind of religious guts that took? Peter! And Paul came later, right? Peter was like the guy who preached at Pentecost, the leader of the disciples. And Paul stands up and says, Peter, you have this wrong. What? And of course, Peter was humble. <laughs> Thankfully, by then, the Lord had changed his heart. But that's what Paul lived for. Not for his own glory. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That follows his confrontation of Peter. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you realize how easy it is and how much of a propensity it is within the human being to add works to the gospel? We, we, this is a temptation for all of us and will be for the rest of our lives. And that's why Paul wrote these letters to, to guard the gospel and to help guide the church to stay in the truth. Paul fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And again, he didn't do any of those things perfectly. No one can but Christ. But by the strength of Christ's grace, he struggled, he endured, he persevered, and completed what God had prepared for him to do. And he left Timothy a model to follow. And he's left us a model to follow as well. Isn't it precious that we have this? This ancient document preserved for us, inspired by God. Paul's life and sacrificial ministry to fight and finish and defend the faith, it shows us the eternal value of the gospel itself and the infinite value of gospel preaching. It shows us how to defend how to depend upon the strength of Christ's grace in the midst of great difficulty. And it shows us a ministry pattern to follow. Dear ones, listen. When you come to the end of your life, 
as a follower of Christ, will you be able to confess the same testimony as the Apostle Paul? Will you? If not, will it be because you did not value the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel? Or because you did not depend upon the strength of Christ's grace to endure the struggle? Christ has called every one of us as believers to engage in the struggle of gospel proclamation to one degree or another. The arena of conflict and the intensity of the fight will be different for different believers. The race course may be differing in length or more or less strenuous for different believers. The position from which to defend the faith may be more or less intense. But we're called to fight and finish and defend the faith and proclaim the gospel for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of sinners, for the building of the kingdom of God. The past motivation for preaching the word is this. Gospel proclamation is worth agonizing over. 2 Timothy 3.12, remember, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the truth is, if we're not being persecuted for the sake of Christ in some way or on some level, it must be because we are either not living a godly life in Christ or we're not proclaiming the gospel boldly. I think of the, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. We'll look at it later. But that parable of the talents was given. The gospel has been given to us. Will we bury it or multiply it? We can't do any of this by our own doing, by our own ability, but we are standing in grace. We are. The Spirit within us, the new nature God has given, we stand in grace. So therefore, preach the Word. Every struggle, every conflict, every agony, every affliction will be worth it. And even more so as we look at that final motivation next week, a future motivation, the appearing of Jesus Christ. I want to close this message with a series of verses in which the Apostle Paul explains, I want to remind you of this, explains the source of his strength, the source of his ability, his confidence for preaching the gospel, for proclaiming the truth. Here's what he said. Romans 15, 15 through 16. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God. He always says this. It's not Him. It's grace. It's God's grace. The same grace in which we stand. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, By the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 2 Corinthians, so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Alright? Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Galatians 1, 15-16. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. He doesn't even say I'm the least of the disciples or the apostles there. He says I'm the least of all the saints. All of this is not, none, none of this is humanly explainable. This is all the working of the grace of God, His mighty power. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Philippians 1.7 It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of what? Grace. 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And then I read this one to you earlier, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Do you believe that you have available to you in Christ the same grace that Paul received? Maybe not the same arena, maybe not the same intensity of conflict, but the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same power of God. That's why he said this constantly through Ephesians. He says, I wish you could please understand the, the great work of His mighty power that's working in you. This is, where, this is what we are standing in. That's why we too, by God's grace, can preach the Word and proclaim the Gospel till He comes. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not yet to be saved. Yet to be rescued from slavery to sin. And from the, the, the judgment of God's wrath. Is that your position this morning? Well, do you know what you need too? You need grace. You need grace. You cannot save yourself. The Word says, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. There's no way that any of us can save ourselves because we are naturally dead in our sin. We love our sin. And we are by nature the objects of God's wrath. And justly so, because we are sinful. And so because of that, you're not only sinful, but you're unable to save yourself. You know what you need? You need not to simply pray a prayer, walk an aisle, sign a card. You know what you need? You need to be united with Jesus Christ. And you can't do that for yourself. Only through the Spirit, only the great, mighty working of God can He raise you up and unite you with Christ spiritually and seat you in heavenly places with Christ so that you are justified and so that you will be sanctified and glorified, and stand complete in Christ before God someday. You need Christ. You need His righteousness to cover you. You need His death to atone for you and absorb your guilt and your punishment. You need His resurrection life to unite you with Him. That is the essence of salvation, union with Christ. And that's only a divine work, not a human work. So I urge you today, if that's your condition, and you desire to be made alive with Christ and forgiven and given the gift of eternal life, call out to Him. All who come to me, Jesus says, I will never cast away. I came to save those whom the Father has given me and I will raise them up on the last day, Jesus said. If you want it, you can have it. Come to Him in prayer and repentance and faith. Trust in Christ alone, not your work, not your sense of goodness. In Christ alone, and God has promised to save all who trust in Christ. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we come before you humbled and confessing because we are so far from what we want to be in all of these things. We are convicted. I speak in behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ we are deeply convicted by the words of this text. We thank you that we stand in your grace forgiven. That we stand righteous. But you have stirred us to want these things. We want to be like Christ. We want to be like Paul. As we witness. As we teach our families. As we speak the truth in love to one another and herald the good news of the gospel to our co-workers. We want to preach the word as elders. Father, you have called us to these things. You have ordained these means of building your church. So we want to have the heart and the ability to offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice to the very last drop Take our hearts away from the desires of this earth, the things that will not last, the things that do not matter, and place in our hearts a great longing to be all 
in on the things of eternal life. We pray that you would save those this morning who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that even faith is a gift from you. All the grace is a gift from you. We confess, we know, we believe. It's not our work, not one bit. And the only thing that we will have to boast in is in the cross of Christ. Make that those, make, make that the boast of those here this morning who are not yet believing. Bring them to Christ. Bring them to the cross, Father. We plead with you to do that for their good, for their eternal joy and your glory in the endless display of glory through the kindness that you desire to show sinners for all of eternity. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.